Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga. It's Tuesday, the 30th of, of November. I'm Alex Hochuli. I'm joined, as usual, by Philip Cunliffe. Uh, hi, Phil. Hey, how's it going? Uh, our uh, punning quotient will be significantly reduced today because uh, George Hoare is away. So no George today. But we're joined by Douglas Lane. Hi, Doug. Hi. Glad to be on. Yeah, very good to have you back on. Uh, listeners will probably know you as, uh, or will have known you as the publisher of Zero Books, but he's now uh, off starting new ventures, uh, specifically at Diet Soap, which is a, a soon to be a media empire, but uh, for the moment is a, a YouTube channel, a podcast, and soon to be a publishing house. We're looking forward to uh, to seeing what DSM has, uh, has in store for us. Uh, we're going to be talking about that and Doug's plans uh, in just a bit. And uh, we're also going to be talking a little bit more widely about other things. But uh, these, these have been, I guess, turbulent times. Doug, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. It's been a kind of a rough year, but I'm, I'm all right. I, I've come out the other side of it, I hope. Well, soon enough, we'll see what 2022 sounds like. So yeah, I mean, so... So, so for listeners, I mean, this might be a little bit inside baseball, as Americans like to say, but we're going to talk a little bit about what happened uh, with Zero Books. Um, but mm. we're also going to dedicate a lot more of the time talking about, well, about the left, uh, which is our favorite subject, but about the Gen X left in comparison to the millennial mm. left um, mm. and where we are today. Because um, we're going to be talking a little bit about No Logo, um, my favorite book when I was 15 for about three months, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> is no indication whatsoever as to its quality because I was an idiot. Eh, but you're supposed to be an idiot at that age, I suppose. Yeah. Seen but not heard. Uh, that's my attitude. Anyway, um, so I actually wanted to start this off by by uh, referring to an upcoming video uh, that you're doing for Diet Soap. Uh, you sent me the script of it uh, where you asked provocatively, is it time for the left to start defending neoliberalism? And uh, the answer, and I guess apologies for the spoiler here, is no, of course no. Um, and actually, I, I'd probably add, and, and you hint at this as well, is that the reality is that in light of a supposed nationalist backlash, Trump, et cetera, et cetera, the left has actually been defending neoliberalism in recent years, uh, and which is a point that we make. We make it in The End of the End of History, our book, which was published uh, on, on Zero Books, uh, that the left, faced with The End of the End of History, has largely cowered from the new realities uh, and the new openings that this period might afford and actually has been affected by by knobs, by neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, almost as much as the liberal mainstream and probably more than uh, traditional conservatives have. So we're going to be talking about the left uh, in just a little bit in and in, in trying to connect up some different discussions about the left, because there's the one that we present in, in the book in the end of the end of history, uh, which came out five months ago on, on Zero Books. And if you haven't bought a copy yet, um, I'm amazed because you're listening to this podcast and you haven't bought it yet, but um, you know, there's still time. It's still out there being sold. Um, but so, so the, the history that we present there, especially in the introduction is kind of a potted history of what the left has done over the past 30 years and what changed as of maybe 2016. But also uh, Doug, you've been putting out videos on your channels and podcasts and these great 20 minute YouTube videos, which you're continuing to do on, on diet soap now on critical theory and the left and which often deals with, things like questions like the legacies of the new left and kind of where, how the left has transformed over uh, recent periods and trying to provide listeners and start a discussion, I guess, to generate a sort of sense of greater self-consciousness about what the left is um, and what the kind of possi historical possibilities are today. 
uh, we're going to get to all of this and I should stop talking. Um, and I bring Doug in because uh, I guess that just the simple question is zero books, what happened to the extent that you can talk about it because there may be some legal issues with certain things. Um, but uh, just give us uh, for listeners who won't be familiar with this, what won't have followed this sort of inside lefty stuff, uh, what's actually happened. Well, I want to start by saying what didn't happen. What didn't happen is that I didn't, I, I, it, I was not fired because I, tweeted that I like Dave Chappelle. That didn't happen. That, that, um, that, that was the rumor that people were passing around. I, I, I discovered uh, some people with, with a lot of uh, glee were, were, were you know, celebrating the demise of the shitlord Doug Lane. Um, but that's not what happened. What happened is- Do you um, like, but do you like Dave, um, Dave Chappelle? I do like Dave Chappelle, yeah. All right. I just, I, just I to get it funny. Would, would have been a yeah. better story, I guess. But, you know, let's go with the truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did tweet in support of Dave Chappelle at an inopportune moment and I uh, was ratioed quite severely for it, but that did not uh, lead to my termination. So um, what happened instead was that uh, John Hunt of John Hunt Publishing sold his company, all of it, not just zero books, but all the imprints to Watkins Publishing. And Watkins Publishing is the uh, parent company of a, uh, an imprint called Repeater. And Repeater is the imprint that uh, Tariq Goddard and others started at when they left Zero Books in 2014. So when Watkins um, pu- uh, Publishing purchased John Hub Publishing, what that meant was the Repeater, the people at Repeater, were getting their imprint back. They, when they left um, John Hub Publishing originally, they had intended to bring Zero Books with them wherever they were going next. Uh, John Hunt, who owned the imprint, did not let them. Um, and they spent, I guess, the last six years want, pining away for it. So they've gotten it back. And um, good for them because they published a lot of good stuff when they were there. I'm sure they'll continue to publish interesting books going forward. Uh, so that wasn't really the uh, an issue of, uh, in dispute. Um, but when they got the, the imprint back, I was either let go or demoted or something. I was told no longer to do my job, which was to select books to publish and uh, issue contracts that, that I was not going to be doing that going forward, that repeater wanted zero books. That's what I was told. And which was just, you know, disconcerting because it meant I didn't have a job as far as I could tell. (laughs) But the other thing that happened was um, uh, the YouTube channel and Patreon that I had set up uh, while I was at zero books was apparently sold as a part of the, the, the deal. And that I didn't appreciate because uh, I thought of it as my own. I was a freelancer working without a contract. Um, and th- that meant the rights were mine to the content I produced. As far as yeah. I could tell, I kept actually asking for a contract that would spell out that I was holding onto those rights and was sort of told, oh, in principle, we would agree with you, that kind of thing. Um, but I didn't ever get one. So no contract was ever put forward. However, at this point, I should say unequivocally that I have relinquished all claims to the YouTube channel and the previous Patreon um, that I have no legal rights to them anymore. And the people at repeater and uh, at Watkins do, they own those channels now. So um, that's all behind me, but that was what the dispute was really about was whether or not I could hold on to those. um, Before we go any further, uh, I'm going to say this now, but I'm going to say it later as well, that listeners should follow Doug's, channels uh doug why don't you tell us where uh, to find them given that you had to relinquish control of the previous 
previous yeah so previous I, assets. The, the big one to go to is patreon patreon.com backslash diet soap um that's where you can give me your money and then if you want to follow me on youtube which you absolutely should as well uh just search for douglas lane or it's youtube backslash doug lane um and you'll find my youtube channel which is a continuation to a large degree of what i was doing before um some of the thumbnails might look a little different than how they looked at the other place but uh, pretty much it's the same stuff it podcasts on a weekly basis critical theory montage videos and um a few more things are going to come along but pop the left will come back for instance excellent what, 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 what was pop the left for i mean i, I used to listen to it ages ago, uh, pop but the yeah, left was what i did with Derek varn so that he would get a chance on a bi-weekly basis to yell at me um but, <laughs> but it was a it was a history we, we looked at the history of socialism and tried to uh at, at the same time um pop the illusions of the contemporary left and enter and, and comment on the contemporary scene as well. So we would, we would look through the history of uh, socialism in a kind of eclectic or uh, arbitrary way. We didn't start at the beginning and go all the way to the end or anything like that, but we would, we did a whole sec- uh, series on utopian socialism. Uh, we did a, a question, the question of dual power, um, we looked at the revolution of 1848, those kinds of, we would just sort of cover historical moments and thinkers. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, I would be told uh, all the ways in which I, I was wrong um, uh, in, in, in private parrot room struggle sessions for patrons only. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, very good. So yeah, that people should definitely go and check out. Um, I mean, I have to say that following this, uh, you know, kind of from afar, as it were, I mean, not being directly connected, but obviously, you know, being friends with you on Facebook and seeing what's coming out and all that. It's all, you know, kind of unedifying and this kind of squabbling. And you have to say that some of the statements that the, uh, what are they called? Continuity zero books or well, anyway, the repeater books people are, yeah. uh, just kind of it seems unnecessary and incredibly petty um and i people who uh maybe no less than i do have asked me even like oh what's the you know what's the in on this like what what's the politics behind this because whenever there's some sort of you know put put in kind of general terms like left split you want to be like oh what's the what's the politics behind this what are the implications here um do you do you think that there's nothing or i mean because they've made some statements like uh, you know, some insinuations that there's general populist infiltration, you know, around the world, but also at zero books and things like this, which. Uh... Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I would say that, uh, frankly, I haven't paid enough attention to what repeater books did to know what their politics are. Um, so I can't speak to what their politics are in any competent way, but I will say that. Uh, in terms of some of the allegations that were put forward about the, our supposed rightward turn, um, I don't think that that holds up to scrutiny because, um, for instance, a big deal has been made about Zero Book's relationship with Spiked. Uh, Philip, you you are part of the problem here. Um, All right, believe me, I know. <laughs> I've Philip was named in many this. Years. <laughs> um, but the truth is that before I started at Zero Books, the, the, the imprint had published a, a number of, of people who were affiliated with Spiked. Um, so that's not a change. And I would stand behind any of the books that we published. Uh, and I don't think any of them are reactionary. Although I am not uh, uh, 
overall um, aligned with spiked. I think that uh, the, the overall that like spiked has given up on the working class way too much. And, um, and, you know, I think Brendan O'Neill is uh, kind of a, a, a shadow of his former self. He's, he's become one of these anti-woke uh, people who, you know, it's, it's just, it's boring at this point. Um, but uh, yeah, so that would be one thing that uh, I was accused of. The other thing that would sometimes happen is I get a, a smeared as the publisher of a guy named Gilad Atzman. I think that's how you say it. I'm not sure. Yeah. But he was, a, he's a, he's an anti-Semite um, yeah. and a Jew and Israeli. And the book that was published was called The Wandering Who, which I worked to get off the imprint's back catalog and shifted to another imprint that JHP owned, which was like a compromise position. Um, yeah, I mean, so that was published again by the previous, the people who are taking it now, uh, they published that. I'm sure they thought they now regret it, but um, there was a scandal around that book. And I'm usually pretty much completely like a free speech absolutist, but that book, turn my stomach and and that I went as an editorial speech. decision not necessarily as a question of free speech but as an right exactly i would never have published that yeah. that book um uh so you also there yeah. was also flack for um angela nagel's book given subsequent i mean her criticisms of the left in in um in kill all normies but then also subsequently the position she took on immigration and i mean what struck me as odd about that also was the idea that publishers um, you know, have to kind of agree with everything that their writers, their writers right, say. Yeah. An absurd, an absurd position, entirely absurd. Right. I mean, the thing about Angel Nagos, um, I really actually, her book, Kill All Normies, is one of the, the high points, I think, uh, for the time I was at Zero. It did really yeah. well. It was timed well. It was a really good book. Um, despite some of the copy editing problems, it was well written. Um, uh, uh, so I absolutely stand by Kill All Normies as a book people should still read. Angela Nagel's turn, I can't make heads or tails out of it. I don't, I mean, her position on uh, open borders is one thing. Um, since then, she's also kind of gone on an anti-left uh, tear, I think, a little bit, which I am critical of. Um, overall, uh, though my position has been like towards all the books that we publish, that uh, because I do what's called content marketing, meaning I create videos and podcasts to get people's attention for the books. I'm not constrained to like or agree with the authors that we publish. So like I was critical of, of Nagel uh, uh, yeah. around the, the question of immigration. Um, I think, I think in a pretty fair way. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I, I wouldn't, again, like I wouldn't back down from having supported that book and, and be being proud of uh, publishing it. If Nagel wanted to write a book, that was on the left socialist book that was as good as that one. I would publish her again, despite some of her statements, but I, um, I'm not that keen on the anti-left uh, Marxists or whatever. Uh, and, you know, uh, that doesn't mean I, you know, would never work with any of them, but I just don't, uh, I'm, I'm not aligned with that position. Well, I mean, we can get onto some of that in a bit. I mean, I think part of what you've all just said really is that, well, it speaks to the problem of the desire to enforce orthodoxy on the left, guilt by association, the insistence that uh, a publisher, for example, or a magazine be held accountable for every single thing that they publish. Not that things shouldn't be argued about or that, you know, if, uh, say, a magazine publishes an article which is terrible, uh, people that, that that shouldn't be argued about, but the kind of... Um, 
not people just not understanding really uh, the difference between free speech and editorial decisions, uh, trying to hold people to account for uh, for providing a kind of wide platform for different people, all these kinds of things. Uh, basically, it, to, to sum it up, I guess, the left's aversion to open debate. Yeah, I mean, I think in this case, most of those charges when are coming from the people who are taking, uh, who purchased zero books, um, they, they didn't take anything, they bought it. Um, the, I, I think it's just opportunism. I don't think that they, that that's really what's behind it. The, the main, the main charge that was leveled at me for years was that I was a scab because I took the job of being the publishing manager after they had quit and started another imprint, but weren't allowed to take the brand with them. Um, I don't think that I think calling me a scab is the wrong word. Uh, maybe from their perspective, I was a jerk, but I, I wasn't a scab. <laughs> well, and that, that's uh, another thing, reaching, <laughs> reaching for kind of larger political terms with wider significations when maybe someone's just being a jerk as, as a suggestion. But, I'm not calling but I mean, you a jerk. From my but... perspective, from my perspective, look, it was it was a great opportunity to uh, take a job that I really enjoy doing and. Um, I didn't tell them that they couldn't take the imprint, uh, with them. That was John Hunt. And, you know, I didn't know them. I was this American, this unwashed, uncouth, ugly American to stepping in. I didn't even know when tea time was, you know? Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so yeah. Um, but in any case, I think that's really what's behind some of the animosity you're, you're hearing from them is this sort of longstanding resentment. Um, there was pop probably originally aimed at John Hunt and just sort of like I got some of it because I continued the imprint past the point when they would have wanted it to continue. So I suppose broadening out the discussion then from um, and given you're in the position of launching something new um, mm -hmm. and your experience that you've just been recounting, how do you see the task of left media and publishing? Um, and is it about, in, is it like something like preserving a certain kind of method or approach? Um, or is it to innovate something new and to build constituencies where they don't exist at the moment? Well, I would love to try to build constituencies or, or bring people into a, a movement or a party. But I don't think that's what uh, so Media is going to be designed to do. Um, if anything, what I mean, we're going to publish. We already have a, uh, our first book uh, selected. It's Todd McGowan's book called "Enjoying It Right and Left." Oh, excellent! Uh, that's a good good author to start with. That's really great. Yeah, and the the point of of the, what we're trying to do now going forward is we're going to publish fewer books than I did at zero, um, and we're going to uh, select them with uh, you know a bit more care. And uh, the idea is to try to introduce the notion of dialectical thinking to the Anglophone left um, to try to get over some of the, try to move past the impasse and break from the tendency to repeat um, and, by, and just go back into the earlier problems um, by pushing this idea that you can't, um, uh, truly understand a political problem or a contradiction in society simply by taking a one-sided moralistic view of it. So like, for instance, on the question of family values, um, the progressive 
far left often takes an anti-family stance, sees the uh, institution as patriarchal, oppressive of women, yeah. uh, uh, you know, backwards, often uh, religious in ways that are detrimental to human freedom um, and so on. Uh, I don't disagree with a lot of that assessment of the family, but at the same time, I feel as though the left should recognize that it is also, as Christopher Lash said, a haven in a heartless world. It's a realm of, uh, of meaning and of uh, personal connection um, uh, and intimacy. And as broken as it is and as dysfunctional as it is because of the way it's situated in a world that is heartless and cruel and alien, um, nonetheless, it can't simply be rejected you know so um thinking through what the left's relationship should be to uh, the family what kind of what kinds of supports working class families need and and what our uh, attitudes might be uh you know would, would be something that i would want to tackle um uh, going forward you know there's actually a book on yeah. the family that might be coming out as well so yeah i mean i i don't disagree that the more dialectical approach to these questions is absolutely needed. I guess maybe to play devil's advocate on this, actually, because it doesn't necessarily mm. represent my view exactly. But the, I think the argument on the part of some is that the general trend in capitalism, to put it simply, is is to uh, is you know fragmentary, dissolving the family, etc. Basically, uh, impeding the possibility even of, of developing kind of a family or a stable sort of home life or anything like that, and that therefore it is an imperative to somehow do the opposite to defend the family uh, against and if even whatever points of progressive the progressive left might have, uh, ultimately they are on the side of capitalism. They're, they're they're on the side of the disintegrative forces, and therefore you need to defend the family. I mean, something that's that's an argument that someone would make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, okay. So like, uh, I, I think you go too far to say that the people who are critiquing the family for uh, along the lines that I originally stated are on the side of capitalism, because that's the, the weird thing about capitalism is that if you're trying to preserve the family, you're also on the side of capitalism because capitalism is a contradictory meandering force and this certainly ideologically and culturally. And so like defending the family, attacking the family, both things are service capital in different historical moments, you know. Um, but I think what needs to be recognized is that the, what the conservative pro-family position uh, has right is that working class people, all people, but specifically working class people because they're the radical subjects here, require a, a stable, meaningful life of connection in order to be able to start functioning as agents of change. And so when we uh, think about uh, what kinds of supports we need to, to give or what kinds of policies or pr- proposals or movements we want to make, we should not be allergic to some of them that are in support of family life. And it, like, for instance, uh, parental rights or something like that, that yeah. not, that's not always a conservative thing to, to struggle for, um, but it, it does depend on the moment. No, I, I think that that's absolutely correct. I think as a as a task uh, or as a way to conceive of an intellectual project. I think today. 
Hi there, listener. If you're new to us, I just wanted to say that a lot of the discussion we're about to have here refers to the question of generational politics. So you might want to check out our special five-part series on the history of generations and the current generation war. It's called OK Boonger, The Problem of Generations. And you can find a link in the show notes or go to bungacast.com slash series slash generations. But, uh, but for now, I think uh, we do have to revisit the trauma uh, <laughs> and we'll talk about uh, Gen well, X, uh, in the, the Gen in, X left. The big trauma for me is my is my divorce. By the way, <laughs> speaking of family, so it's, it's, very, it's much more that. immediate. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're, we're talking about about uh, deep buried traumas of uh, of Generation okay. X. Um, so mm. you've written this thing about no logo, which, if anything, I think pretty much sums up the Gen X left, or I guess it's the later end of Gen X, uh, really, mm-hmm. because uh, the Gen-, Gen X left as listeners to uh, to our series, uh, OK Boonger, on the history of generational conflict, uh, will have heard, you know, that the Generation X is the, the generation of the end of history, and some ha- sense mm-hmm. uh, contained mm-hmm. all those disappointments, uh, disappointments of the failures of 68 and that whole moment, and also uh, the experience of a rising neoliberalism and the end of the OSSR and all the rest. Um, but no, but let's talk about no logo specifically because you've uh, just written this thing. Well, we, I read the script that you, uh, that you sent me for the video that you're putting out. And it's interesting that that sort of anti-branding attitude, anti-advertising, all that kind of uh, no logo uh, ad busters politics, which was very of the moment in the mid nineties, late nineties has completely disappeared. And Maybe it's that we're now too cynical and that we don't even buy advertising. So you can't even say, hey, stop buying into what the advertising users are telling you. Or alternatively, that we are now all marketeers ourselves and that we've been fully subsumed. I just want to contest this idea that it's completely disappeared because Adbusters still exists. It's <laughs> I mean, Adbusters put out in, their in the Pacific pie. Northwest where you live. I, 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 I totally <laughs> understand that that might still be a thing. I, I'm talking about what I know. Okay, yeah, yeah, it might be different. No, no. I mean, you're right that, that uh, as far as being a dominant voice on the left, it did disappear. But, you know, it didn't disappear in 99. It disappeared after 2011. Adbusters and uh, was part of the Occupy movement. I think it was I think it was Adbusters that put forward the call. Yeah. Am, am I yeah, I think that? that's right. Yeah. Um. So, uh, you know, that kind of anti-corporate, anti-advertising, anti-consumerist left dominated even after, you know, the new normal took hold after 9-11. It it dominated even after, surprisingly, even after the economic crisis of 2008, which is when I broke from it. You know, uh, that's when I became a Marxist instead of a, I don't know, rad lib anarchist or something, because um, I didn't Look, when the economic crisis hit, I was working at a uh, call center at Comcast, and I wasn't sure. And I had uh, a novel in with the publisher, and I I just felt like my big career ambitions were being dashed upon the rocks of the breaking U.S. economy. And um, and so I realized that my anti-consumerist, you know, uh, austerity-minded anarchism was not of the moment. Did not help me at all understand mm. what the reality of politics were after 2008 returning to no logo now in a moment where the issue of branding is you know actually on my mind for kind of real personal reasons or particular reasons um i was 
wanting to know, like, is there something there in Naomi Klein's position that deserves to be taken up again? And it certainly is the case that the, the power of branding and the, um, the culture, the corporate culture that, that we were railing against in the 80s and 90s and beyond uh, has deepened and changed and mm-hmm. changed. Um, so it, there is a there is something to Naomi Klein's no logo position, which and I think it has to do with how uh, corporate culture and commodification of all aspects of life changes our understanding of the world uh, and our kind of develops an ideology. Wasn't um, wasn't it that the I mean what I recall I mean this uh, probably with the benefit of hindsight, but I recall it was very quickly absorbed. Um, and within kind of within very little time at all that you had the, you know, that you'd have ad, it would become kind of part of the syllabus on um, advertising courses, ad execs would be talking about um, no logo, how influential it was, how important it was for their own thinking. Um, and if that's, I think the, that's the process which um, Klein, I think, would struggle to really appreciate. Into what actually, you know, the very fact that she, that her own kind of anti consumerism was repackaged as a kind of consumerism. And like you say, now the way in which kind of branding works is that it's, um, it's kind of, uh, I mean, I suppose part of it is that it's gone, it's become even more normalized and covert, you know, so in the sense that it's, um, product placement, which wasn't really a thing as far as I can recall when, um, when Naomi Klein kind of, um, um, publish no logo it became a it, it was but in, it was like in big hollywood movies it wasn't like yeah everywhere. Was it wasn't Wayne's like people World. on tiktok advertising yeah. products yeah i mean i was thinking mm. of the sopranos so this is you know the kind of the sopranos moved into product placement and the sopranos kind of um whereas like yeah i mean i guess it was associated with the big movies but it didn't become part yeah it didn't become tiktok it wasn't instagram it wasn't influencers that whole thing came later and that, I guess, is, um, I mean, is that what you mean by the idea that it's become, that it's it become amplified? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think that brands are, like, like I wonder, is Doug Lane a brand now? I mean, it, kind of, I am. You right? are, and, absolutely you are, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yes, support so. that brand against other brands. <laughs> don't, don't worry. Yeah, um, yeah, well, I mean, that would have been, that would have been something I might have argued. Um, but but it not that wouldn't be the way I want to argue about these things. And I so like the notion of the general intellect and the the um the, the desirability of uh, freely exchanging ideas and using one another's um understanding uh for our own betterment and 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 certainly like uh uh freely creating innovative innovative technologies. Um that's gone by the wayside. I mean, the there's still, I guess, a free software movement and i'm going to actually talk to to one of the advocates of it uh soon but um yeah i do think that we have a conception sort of a mystical conception of what a brand is now that is just more fundamental to some people's everyday lives than it had been in the past and you know the obvious thing is like for a while now we all have had like an instagram profile or a facebook profile or we're on twitter where we develop our brands, even if we're not media yeah, people. I, I've noticed this in in like social media debates on the left, where it's in, it's a, it's all spoken about 
whether people are conscious of it or not, in terms of market positioning, uh, we have positioned ourselves as X, we've come up with a label for whatever our politics is, uh, and we are positioning ourselves like this. So we have to, you know, and it's always um, it's somehow preempting how it'll be received and its positioning in the, in the sort of marketplace. And that's the kind of level of subsumption, which I think is, is new. Um, and it's funny because I, I've kind of changed my opinion on this a little bit because my attitude to that whole anti-branding politics, I'm still very critical of it. But mm-hmm. for me, it was like, and as, even as we were writing the, 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 the book, uh, the end of the end of history, like when we started writing it, which was what, two years ago or something like that, already mm-hmm. that was a little bit of a different historical moment because there were still the kind of some expectations or little hopes around left populism uh, that, you know, that no logo stuff was completely degenerate, completely obsessed with total simulacra, total domination by brands and whatever, and some idea of being outside of capitalism and of alternative culture and stuff. And that was a complete delusion. Whereas now we're a little bit smarter because we're talking about power and okay, maybe too limited to elections, too limited to existing parties, the Labour Party, the Democratic Party, but nevertheless, there's a re-engagement with power. We've left behind the age of, you know, take what, uh, what is uh, John Holloway's book, take uh, what does it change the world yeah. without taking power, right? We'd left that behind. Right, right, right. And so mm-hmm. for me, it was not a, just a story of kind of tendential de- like decline since then, but that we've, that in some ways there's a resurgence of a moment or a re-engagement with politics, right? The book, the, what we argue in the book. What you're saying here, and I, I kind of agree with it, is that there has maybe been something lost there in terms of a critical attitude. I think the adi- what was wrong about Nologo was trying to somehow be outside, somehow trying to carve out a cultural space outside of capitalism. I don't think that's possible or you know, strategically makes any sense, but at least there was a more critical attitude towards participating in this, whereas now we do it completely gleefully. I think kind of- there's a bit more there, and this, I, I think I'd push well, maybe kind of sliced it a different way. And this is picking up a bit on what Doug suggested about earlier about the kind of the dialectical approach. I mean, the thing that strikes me the most about kind of branding is that it's kind of a refuge for utopia. And this might not be um, a, you know, a popular thing to say, but I mean, um, you know, it strikes me that it's a kind of, it's a car and it's obviously carved out and individualistic, but it's the realm in which, um, you know, so if you think of the Instagram influencer perfectly um, creating um, the perfect shot, you know, like, um, and whereas outside of the frame, everything looks much worse. You know, there's an effort there to shape a certain vision of life that is, um, you know, that by definition is appealing because lots of people, you know, are attracted to it and they follow the relevant person and so on. And I think the same is generally true of any, um, you know, or plenty at least of successful advertising campaigns that sell a certain kind of vision of life associated with a product. I mean, I'm always struck, for instance, and maybe this is just how shallow I am, though, um, I'd like to think that it's um, that I'm no, you know, no more shallow than most other people who go to the cinema. But when you see like a car ad in in before um, before the trailers for a movie, I'm always amazed at the production values and the um, the effort, and also the tremendous attention to a certain kind of vision of life that comes with them. And those seem to me like it does seem to me to what is appealing about them is that there is a kind of utopian dimension to the way in which brands sell certain kinds of visions of life that you don't get anywhere else, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And certainly not on the left, Um, because, you know, the left really is kind of um, so, 
um, absorbed with um, doom mongering for the most part. We know with the pos- partial exception, I suppose, of the fully automated luxury, luxury opportunist crowd. Um, but apart <laughs> from then, you know, it's well, kind of there is nothing. I, I, I want to jump in and, and see if I can add to what you're saying because I, I I agree with it in part. And the um, there's a background theoretical uh, position to this no branding ad busters uh, politics and. And that it doesn't come from the, the 80s or 90s, but from the 50s and 60s. It's a, the SI, the Situationist International, and the books like Society of the Spectacle. And um, so the brand, from like a the, from the perspective of Guy Debord, would just be one instance of a generalized spectacle uh, where the workers and the people in society are put in the position of being mere spectators to history rather than their active agents. Right. So Keita board railed against um, the mediating spectacle of capitalist society. Um, and uh, I think there's some value in his work, but I would say that the vision I came to the conclusion that his vision of a spectacular society, a society really mediated by imagery and affect and, uh, and the, uh, and the media was a utopian vision. It's actually what we want. (laughs) What we have is a society mediated by labor and the amount and socially necessary labor time, which he kind of leaves out of his critique, even though he talks about the commodity. Um, so, so why would just why would his vision why why is it a utopian vision actually or um, well, it, utopian? It, because um we uh because whenever because real experience is always uh somewhat alienating like we are never directly uh experiencing the world we're experiencing the world through lenses and meanings and imagery and and feelings and notions and all those things are are uh, spectacles. You know, they're 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 virtual. They're, we don't have a direct perception, uh, an experience, and relationship to the world. It's always mediated. Um, and the the spectacle, uh, the 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 idea that we're, as Gita Ward puts it, though, the idea that we're mediated by, you know, Hollywood films and news reports and. Uh, the feeling of a rock song and uh, a sexy lady on the fashion runway and things like that. Like to live in a world where that is actually what determines um, what's produced, how it's distributed, where you end up, what your workday is like would be utopian in comparison to the kind of world where we're, we actually live in, where what determines where you end up is, you know, how well, uh, workers do uh, on the factory floor and what the, uh, what the role of technology is and augmenting and yeah. speeding up production. And, yeah. um, and it's like this book behind me, Bash Bash Revolution is all about thinking about the spectacle as actually in a way a utopian, um, like going into the spectacle as the utopian solution uh, be, beyond um, capitalism. So now having said that a brand is a property relation. It's not um, merely this uh, an image or feeling. I mean, it, it is those things, but it's also the, a claim of ownership and a, and a limit around um, those ideas. So, and it's very bad for the left to be branded, for left thinkers to be branded, because um, then everything you do 
and, and this is an unfortunate reality of how things are. I mean, you cannot avoid it, but everything you do is thought of in terms of your brand identity. So like if I decide to interview Glenn Greenwald, that's a decision I'm making that is both based on my actual opinions and what he's saying and the ideas he's putting forward and the arguments that are made, but also about his brand and my brand. <clears throat> and how do those two things interact and, and how will other branded identities inter- uh, you know, perceive me in relationship to their brands? And um, I think that when it comes to like spaces like Twitter, you have a lot of people who aren't even monetizing their brand who consider themselves to be brands and yeah. who relate to other um, thinkers online, you know, other yeah. people on Twitter as yeah. brands. I always wonder about those people. Are they the smart ones or the dumb ones? The ones <laughs> yeah. who think of themselves in terms of brand, but unmonetized. Because I think I probably, I think I probably fall into that. The the unthinking, the unthinking brand. Um, so yeah. Anyway. No, and, yeah, to, so and to win at Twitter, you kind of need to if you want to win at Twitter, which is a stupid thing, the stupid yeah. game to play. But yeah, when, like when you Dave win Chappelle at Twitter, says, do they send you an real... iPhone? Or what, what, what do you get? <laughs> no, cancellation. Yeah, cancellation place. is the ultimate prize. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've won already. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's another aspect. I mean, to also to think about this maybe more politically and the way that this inf- uh, influences how we think about politics. Um, and I think more, you know, in a, in a more limited sense uh, of the political, which is in relation to public opinion as well, where there's a constant obsession with mood and what the people want. So there's a kind of not just specifically branding, but more marketing, right? We're always obsessed. And we spoke actually the last episode we did, we had a kind of critical discussion, uh, the three of us, Phil, George, myself, about the Jacobin uh, polling survey that they did, opinion survey of working class voters, right? But there's some interesting stuff there. Um, but, you know, it, basically there's a, there's still this element of like, what are the people thinking? And the thing is, is that when the world used to be organized and when society used to be organized into effectively into parties, into blocks, right? That the people were members of organizations uh, to a certain extent, the representatives of those organizations, those leaders represented public opinion, right? Represented different views of different sections of society, different interests, different ideas, etc. Today, without that, it's like everyone's become, or anybody who's interested in politics or trying to win people over, or even just carve out a niche, is kind of desperately trying to figure out what the latent demand is, to put it in precisely marketing mm-hmm. ca- marketing terms, um, mm-hmm. and also spicing up the population into marketing categories. Ah, these are the white working class who are traditionalists, but more left-leaning, or these are the you know progressive PMC and blah 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 blah. And we do it ourselves. We you know we, we we're constantly kind of doing this kind of marketing t- categories, often in relation to people who aren't saying anything. They're not manifesting themselves in any way. It's just what we assume is in their heads and their, that, it, that are their attitudes and uh, concealed preferences, not revealed yet, or maybe only revealed by who they chose to push the button for at the ballot box. And that's about it, right? The, the level of political agency expressed there is extremely limited, if, if at all. Um, and I think that's another way in which marketing thinking has uh, infiltrated political thinking. And, and obsesses us. And of course, political marketeers will do that. People who work for political parties, lobbies, blah, 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 will do that and be concerned about that stuff. Let them do it, whatever. We, we can't stop them doing that. But I think it's terrible if us who have some ambition of changing the world um, and not just uh, change it, but, but moving beyond uh, 
precisely this kind of marketing obsession to then participate in it so much as well. Um, I, I'd be more yeah. interested in talking about what people are doing and what the groups of people organized into movements, parties, whatever are doing, than just talking about what people actually want, which is always, to a certain extent, I think, a bit of a stage army. Everybody can point out, well, people actually want this. People actually want this because of what? Because of what people say on social media? Because of what uh, sentiment analysis shows us about social media? Um, because of polling? This is all. These are all different forms of... Um, somehow creating consensus rather than any real reflection of, of actual expressed demand for something. Well, I mean, a couple of things come to mind. One is that when in the early days of podcasting, I, I actually read a bit about marketing and I was trying to figure out how to get my podcast out there and get people to listen to it. And um, one of the approaches to marketing is this in content marketing, but there's another approach where it's audience built content marketing and so the idea is that you go to your audience and ask them what they want, and then you give mm. it to them. Like yeah. you don't you don't think up what what <clears throat> what you want to put out there, but you you pull your audience and then you know you build a product based on the desires that your audience expresses to you. And I guess the testing of whether or not that that's really what they want is if they pay you for it or not, right? I mean, and the the same thing's true, and when it comes to politics, like you know. You do this analysis to find out what people want so that you can create a product in the form of a politician or a political campaign. And if it gets voted in, then you've done it right. <laughs> you know, yeah. So you get, you get paid or you get voted in. Um, so the, the problem, I guess, with this approach, for, well, as someone who likes to write and think and do things, I don't really love the idea of, of creating something that people want I want to change what they want. Yeah. Like I want to yeah. reach in and alter these people. Um, but maybe that's just because I'm a narcissist. But uh, uh, the the other problem with it is that um, it it uh, treats it goes back to this no branding thing uh, or you know the no logo. It treats the political uh, actors, it treats citizens only as consumers. You create a a, a commodity. Yeah or a brand that they want and then you get elected and that's the end of the road it's it's um it doesn't it, it is not led by the the voters or the citizens it's not uh it's it's treating them as passive objects that, that you survey it's like uh, that's the other problem with it i think the political problem with it yeah and then and then of course you get the competing victimhood version of this where you can find ever narrow segment, ever narrower segments of the true victims who, uh, you know, like uh, who are the only worthy ones. And you can, and that's, and then you get all the kind of uh, sectarian backbiting within intersectionalist politics, broadly conceived uh, where they attack one another. It's like, Oh, but you can't trust white gays. You have to, you can only listen to the voice of black gays because those are the, 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 yeah, the real I, mean, I think that might so be, on. that might, that might be a good way to monetize something, but I don't think it's a great way to get elected. <laughs> no, 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 right. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, but I want to go to the other side of this no logo thing because I think I've been praising no logo and Klein. I want to I want to criticize uh, this book now. the The problem with no logo and the problem with the politics that were around me at least at the time is that they assumed that, like like Gita Bohr did, that what dictates society and and the outcomes politically in society 
are primarily uh, the attitudes and the uh, and the players uh, in society. So the political actors and the attitudes and the policies that they put forward, with, without considering the underlying material forces of things that are, are like around socially necessary labor time and uh, the tendency the rate of profit to decline and those economic barriers and 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 forces um, uh, are kind of ignored um, and and that that's why uh, the this sort of the contradictory politics of Naomi Klein could emerge I mean she wanted on the one hand to kind of return to uh, a nationalist politics and and be concerned with uh, uh, like American workers I think um, and at the same time, she was uh, blasting um, the, uh, the 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 corporate sector for being um, uh, colonialist and and uh, not yeah. uh, concerned yeah. enough about the humanity of the of the uh, people in the third world. Um, uh, so you know, without realizing that the development would ha- you know that for the the, for the undeveloped nations, development would have to be part of the equation. That would have to some degree or another come from the developed world. Uh, One, I mean, thinking back, I mean, to, I, no logo for me was always kind of absorbed by the anti-globalization movement. So that was always what I associated it with mm-hmm. as part of that era. And it's interesting what you say, like, you know, she wanted a nationalist politics in a way. And they, in a sense, you know, the anti-global, thinking back to it now, the anti-globalization people got what they wanted and not in the form that they wanted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were very excited about, you know, the the so-called Teamsters and Turtles Alliance, the fact that they managed to get um, trade unionists marching in Seattle with um, with environmentalists, and that this was seen as a great achievement. And at the time, um, also, I think, yeah, I think, I think it was in Seattle. I mean, I, mean, I don't even, maybe you were even there, I don't know. I went on the London um, version um, in 2000. But the, um, so if I'm remembering this rightly, I think it was in Seattle that the, uh, the trade unionists dumped Brazilian steel into the harbor or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, in protest of the fact of um, at, you know the kind of depredations of NAFTA and steel dumping by um, uh, by you know competitors with U.S. steel, and so but now you know they subsequently to that they um, the you know the trade or the workers at least and the steel tariffs were set up by Trump, and the working class at least in the Northeast kind of swung you know they swung away from um, from what the place that had been imagined for them by the anti-globalization movement of earlier and people like Naomi Klein and others and her allies kind of reacted with horror when you actually had a working class um, kind of nationalist populist backlash um, in response to globalization in recent years. And so all of that, you know, it strikes me as um, I haven't quite worked through how though, you know, how that politics kind of twisted and turned but that it did essentially they've ended up they've been beaten when they actually saw um you know kind of a revived working class politics of a kind at least in the form of um of trump and brexit and others in the form of populism um they recoiled and they fell back onto defending um neoliberalism effectively in various ways and and that's where they ended up and you know naomi klein still kind of um she's still committed to you know her new thing is um climate and green politics and mm-hmm. so she's still tracing that arc in a sense and is still at least to that extent um you know she's 
plowed into the Green New Deal. Um, and that's the kind of vision that um, her and the many of the anti-globos now in, have ended up in. They've staked their hopes on some kind of supranational state wait, wait, arrangement. Wait. Yeah, wait, I guess I suppose insofar as it would be something that would be implemented like in the US by the federal government, this Green New Deal, that would be in yeah. some sense a bit of a synthesis of their concerns from 20 years earlier. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Mm-hmm. I mean, they would see maybe, you know, some kind of, you know, like building building uh, new green industries and stuff. I imagine that would think, figure as part of their vision. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, um, it's easy to see, though. I mean, I, I'm kind of sympathetic to uh, Naomi Klein and uh, to the 90s left. Of course, you know, I'm of it, so I, I, might, I might as well be sympathetic uh, to it. Um, but you know, you make demands that you think are going to be progressive working class demands to help push the left forward in a, let's say a revolutionary struggle. For instance, you make the demand for $15 an hour minimum wage for everybody to think that will lift up the more impoverished sectors of the working class and allow people to have the stability they need to organize politically. And you get that $15 an hour minimum wage or at least average uh, by through inflation and uh, labor shortages, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, you know, the de- demand means one thing in a political, in certain historical moment and context and political uh, reality. And then it, and when it's met, it might mean something uh, completely different. And uh, th- that's why I think the left has been defending neoliberalism. It's not that uh, anyone wants to outright, uh, defend neoliberalism, but they they don't want to lose a hold of any sort of international solidarity that might exist. And the only international force right now that there is is a neoliberal one. The only way yeah. to cross ethnic uh, divides is through a, a kind of neoliberal moralism. I mean, obviously, it's the thinnest of cosmopolitanisms that they end up defending. And I mean, I, I would argue it probably has very little to do with internationalism, and they forget the the nationalism part of internationalism, that there's at least a certain struggle in specific places and specific locales, which might refer to or engage in a national democracy uh, and try to kind of vault over that or ignore that or turn their back on it in the guise of internationalism. But, you know, really it's the absence of a struggle and the kind of at the national level, which allows them then to, in some sense, fantasize about an international struggle, which is really just, um, you know, leftists online uh, talking across borders, like we're doing right here. Uh, <laughs> hey, don't take away that fantasy. What no. Left? <laughs> no, this is good. You know, it's good to have debate, but, you know, it would be uh, it'd be stupid to pretend that this is some great international internationalist struggle that we're having right here, right now. Right. No, um, I know. you're right. Um. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's the trick. You do need national struggles. You need not you need real workers who live in real places to organize politically in their interests in order to have a, a, the beginnings of a movement that might become a party. But you also want to have coordination between yeah different working class sectors around the world. And obviously, the best way to coordinate those workers is through podcasting. <laughs> Absolutely, we, we've we've had uh, podcasting come in as a solution to so many different issues over the past over the past weeks even but i think it was proposed as a solution to the silent majority give everyone podcasting mics they're no longer silent (laughs) Um, anyway 
Okay, that's the end of this episode. In part two, we talk about how the left has been overtaken by events, and propose a typology of a left divided between progressives, populists, and Marxists. Progressives who are authoritarian, populists who are opportunists, and Marxists who are just lonely. You'll find that at patreon.com slash bungacast, and it's out next week. So that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.